Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 376. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 376 you're listening to. My guest today is Brian Charles, producer, engineer, mixer, writer, educator, guitarist, and yes, plug-in designer. Brian is located in Boston, Massachusetts, and he's worked with a load of bands, including Weekend Friends, The Sheila Divine, The Gigolo Ants, Mike Slap, and many, many others. Many of you are going to know Brian's name because he is behind Zipper Recording there in Boston, which was in the news last December 2021, where there was a huge fire in the building and... The studio suffered an enormous amount of smoke and water damage as a result, destroying lots of the equipment. It was a, uh, a terrible loss. Uh, in fact, many of you may have contributed to the GoFundMe campaign, which I will include a link in the show notes for you to contribute to if you have the means to do so. Brian and I explore, of course, his back history and the creation of Zipper Recording, and we talk extensively about the fire and the ramifications of that. Very excited to have him on. Brian Charles, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Allow me to give you another Dolby Atmos update. I just got back from Los Angeles and I took a, a, a three-day trip there, about two and a half days. I was there Friday, Saturday, and most of Sunday. And I was hosted by former WCA guest, Steve Jenowick. Steve and his wife graciously let me stay at their house and Steve played chauffeur the whole time. I didn't have to rent a car. Steve drove me around Los Angeles, which of course he knows like the back of his hand. And he went above and beyond. He really uh, was a great host. So not only was I comfortable at, at where I was staying at, but I was with one of the great teachers of Dolby Atmos. Because if you think about it, Steve's been working on Dolby Atmos mixes long before Apple publicly announced that they were behind it. He works for Universal Music Group, so he's been working on mixes for quite some time and really kind of helping establish along with Kerry Thomas from Dolby and uh, Maurice Batiste from PMC Speakers, some of the standards of which many of us will be using here in the future. So I was really speaking with some people that have been in on the ground floor. So my, my time with Steve, we spent uh, at his house, of course, he's got an Atmos set up there. And so we went over, you know, different mixing practices uh, his template and how he mixes. He played me a ton of stuff, stuff that uh, he's mixed, of course, and answered all my questions. And then we also went over and hung out with Maurice from PMC, which I mentioned. We we uh, went out to this facility called Lemon Tree, which is a studio facility. It's like a it's like a common space where you know you everybody has a control room and they have access to a live room via Dante really cool space and pmc has numerous rooms there so maurice and ted white from pmc had us over they have a beautiful room there one of the best rooms i've heard ever it's amazing and they played us a ton of stuff i got to hear what many consider the benchmark of dolby atmos mixes and that would be elton john's rocket man in fact they've heard it so many times they kind of rolled their eyes and said oh, okay let's play him rocket man because you know they've heard it a bazillion times but they put up with me listening to it, which was great. After that, we, um, I think, yeah, it was the next day. 
Steve and I hung out all day at his house working on Dolby Atmos stuff, looking through his template. He answered all my questions. And then we went out to uh, former WCA guest Dave Way's house and studio. And Dave hosted us and we sat around and had some whiskey and talked Dolby Atmos, played some mixes, talked about different setups and everybody's thoughts on things. And then afterwards, Dave and Steve and I went out to see the great Steve Gadd, drummer extraordinaire who I have followed since I was a kid, uh, play at Catalina's uh, with his group with a uh, bunch of guys that I wasn't too familiar with, although uh, Larry Fowler on uh, trumpet was there and he was you know truly amazing. But uh, great show. Really cool to see Steve Gadd. Really great to be in a live music venue. Very small jazz club. And that's about it. The trip was fantastic. It really helped eliminate a lot of disinformation that's out there. And hearing things straight from Steve, who I consider one of the authority figures on the matter, really was helpful. So now I'm back. PMC is going to ship my surround speakers this week. And I have uh, I think I've come to a conclusion on which sub I'm going to get. I'm actually not getting a PMC sub. Uh, I'm going to get something a little less expensive, probably a Cali Audio sub or possibly a KRK sub. And I'm going to put this stuff up. I'm going to do a preliminary shooting of the room myself and then Dolby's going to come over and they're going to finalize that shooting those those measurements and and then th that's it then I'll be up and running and mixing and with the knowledge that Steve gave me I feel that I now have a leg up I feel like I can really get going without you know stumbling too much because in the beginning working on headphones I was a little you know little puzzled at some things not really sure how to handle certain things but I really got a, a a start a great starting point to to get going so if you are considering it i highly encourage it the format is definitely out there and operational steve and i spent an enormous amount of time sitting actually in his living room he's got a sonos atmos system in his living room attached to the tv connected to an apple tv and we listened to on apple music we went through song after song after song we listened to great stuff we also listen to some horrible mixes unfortunately there's a chunk of horrible mixes out there and i'm not sure who did them and even if i did know who did them i would not mention them because i just don't want to trash anybody in that respect that wouldn't be very professional of me so i just will say this there's some great stuff out there for sure and there's also some bad stuff so that's that you know i know that there's many of you out there who possibly using the excuse, well, we've been through quad and we've been through 5.1 and that didn't work. Well, quad, right. 5.1, yeah, you know, there's a lot of titles out there that have been mixed in 5.1, a lot of co live concerts. And I won't go into that, but I will say this. This is not those. This is far different. This has got many more industry players behind it. And if you are poo-pooing the idea, uh, you know, I hope that works out for you because this definitely seems to have legs and I'm going all in and I would encourage you to do so as well, if possible. And if you don't, that's okay because there's that much more work for those of us that do want to go in on it. But honestly, I really encourage you to check it out. Dolby Atmos is a great, great way to present music. And after listening to so many Dolby Atmos mixes that were great <laughs> and then listening to my own mixes in stereo, I was totally bored. I was like, oh, this isn't any fun. This is like listening in mono. So make sure and check it out. I will include a link in the show notes to some Dolby documents that you should check out. There's a best practices document. There's also 
uh, a learning site. So I'm going to put those in there. You got to check that out. And as a tribute to my friends, uh, Steve and Dave, I want to put a link in the show notes to my interviews with them. Great guys, really very helpful. And I'm also going to include a link to former WCA guest Brad Wood in the show notes because Brad has been my long distance outmost cheerleader. He and I weren't able to meet up on this trip, but Brad is deep into it and has been very encouraging to me. And so Steve Jenowick, Dave Way, Brad Wood, their links will all be in the show notes as well as all those Dolby documents. So uh, I wish you luck. Those those that are getting into it, those of you that uh, refuse to get into it, hey, to each his own, but yeah, have a second look reconsider. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. That's it. Let's get to it. Brian Charles here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah. Great to have you here. We have a lot to talk about, so I'm just going to dive right in because I need to know a little bit about your background, where you grew up. Well, I moved around a lot as a kid. I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Then we moved to Detroit, then Chicago, then Atlanta. And then I spent like eighth grade through high school in Connecticut, which is kind of where I got the bug for really being serious about being in a band. And then I moved up to Boston with a bunch of my friends. Everybody went to college up here and most of them stayed. So that's kind of how it happened. What is your primary instrument? Guitar is my primary. And how far did you take the band thing? That's a good question. I have been in a number of different situations. I have a twin brother and we played and sang together a lot. So growing up when we moved around as kids, we started playing guitars like fifth grade. And so when we would move around to a new place, we always had each other and we would play guitars. Mm. I remember being in hotel rooms, sitting across from my brother, fighting over who was going to play rhythm and who's going to play lead. And we would just do that to occupy our time. And also we just really loved doing it. So our first band we had was in sixth grade and, <laughs> and it was called Spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> and we had leather bracelets, you know, made that someone's older sister made us, you know, that were like embossed with the band name. So that was pretty much the pinnacle of my grade school uh, years. After that, we moved to Connecticut in the summer before eighth grade, and that's where we met some other kids that had moved into this kind of newer development where there weren't a lot of houses. And one of them happened to be a drummer, and the other one was starting to play guitar, and his father was a really good keyboard player. So he had a Rhodes, and he had a couple amplifiers and things on the top floor, like the, an attic space in the house that was next door to us. And so... My brother and I would go over there and we would meet our next door neighbor, Anthony. His name was Anthony Bambino, the Bambino family from next door. They moved from Queens to Connecticut. Anthony actually ended up being this renowned shredder. He was in like all the guitar world magazine competitions and all that kind of stuff much later. And the other person was Mark Greenberg, who now manages the Loft Wilco studio. And um, we've kept in touch all these years. But we started a band called Phoenix way before the band that everyone knows now called Phoenix. I think we were certainly one of the thousands of bands that had the name before the band that's out now. But we, um, we started writing original songs. We played covers, obviously. We started like that, but we started writing original songs and started recording in my basement. So we eventually migrated over from the attic space next door over into my basement where we had two reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders and we would fill up one of them and 
bounce it over to the next one as we recorded the next thing, that kind of stuff. And we didn't have enough microphones for drums, so we figured out that we could use headphones and we could stick them inside of the kick drum. So that was a big aha moment. Nothing really sounded that great, but it was really fun to be able to record and play back. And we felt like we were on the cusp of something amazing. Well, that band lasted probably, it seemed like a really long time, but it was in reality, it was probably about like six or eight months or something like that. <laughs> but it was like our whole career, you know, was this long, long journey for us. The summer before high school, my brother and I, we joined the summer program in the jazz band at the high school. We didn't really know that many people, and we figured it was a great way to get to know other musicians and also become comfortable with the school and all that kind of stuff. And it gave us something to do. So... It was really early in the morning. I think we met at 7.30 at the school, and we would wake up, get up, be all fuzzy, go out. Our mother would drive us to the school, and we would sit and look at these charts and wonder, what the heck am I looking at? We'd be looking at each other, like, just try to follow along and figure it out, because we couldn't read. Oh. We couldn't read these jazz charts. We didn't know these complicated chords. I mean, we could read chord boxes and things like that at that point, but... um yeah, it was just this funny thing where we were kind of improvising our way through, figuring out what key we were in and flying by the seat of our pants. It ended up being a really great experience for us. And um, a funny story, the band director who we met at the jazz band took a liking to us right away because we would stay after and play rock. You know, we would jam and he would play drums. He was a great drummer. Mm. And so we became kind of like close with this guy and we're psyched that he was going to be our one of our music teachers at high school. And so on the first day of school, there's a pep rally. And he says to us, because he has a marching band too. And so he said, hey, would you guys sit up in the top of the bleachers in the gym and we'll put your guitar amps underneath the bleachers down below so no one can see him. And you put your, you know, my twin brother and I put our guitars on our, la on our laps and the marching band would be in the bleachers playing this pep rally song. And he was going to throw a handkerchief. And when he dropped the handkerchief and it hit the floor, he wanted us to stand up at full volume and break into Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze <laughs> in the gym. And this is the whole school in this gym. Sure enough, the handkerchief hits the floor. These two twins stand up, freshmen, and start, uh, eh, uh, eh, bow, no, 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 you know, break into Purple Haze. The looks on everyone's faces were, even the people in the band didn't know that this was going to happen. They just didn't know. And that was a great way to start high school because we had juniors and seniors and all kinds of different people high-fiving us in the hallways after this <laughs> first morning of school. And we sort of branded ourselves as the musician guys, you know, two of the musician guys, and quickly found the other musician guys and gals in our school. What a way to stand out. <laughs> it was his idea. It was the band, Mr. Chipetta. It was his idea. And um, he was a fantastic teacher. And he, he brought us to see Buddy Rich and mm. all kinds of stuff like that. He, he brought us to see Ray Charles, actually, too, in New Haven. And he was just a fantastic guy for us. We're connected with him on Facebook now, which is really fun. It's funny. My youngest son is in middle school and about to go into high school, and the band director at his school is getting ready to retire. He's one of the greatest band directors I think I've ever encountered. And I will say this, band directors are a special breed. You know, they could be assholes, of course. I've had asshole band directors. But they're a special breed because 
They have one foot in the music and one foot in the school administration. And they're not so straight-laced like the rest of the, the teachers and the administration. And so they're just a little left of center when it comes to culture and adulting at a school, I guess. And they can right. have such a profound influence on all of us who started out in music in schools. And when this guy announced his retirement, I was, even though my kids were going to be out of it, I was just devastated. I was like, oh my gosh, what are they going to do? They can't replace him. He's, he's amazing. So I'm very receptive to the band director stories because they can be very special people in our lives. Absolutely. And he didn't have enough drummers for the drum core. And so it was mostly guitar players, including my brother and I. And that's where we started to learn how to read rhythms and get into music theory. And then there was another teacher at that school, Arthur Shogren, who sadly just passed away recently. He taught us music theory for four years, which was probably the greatest thing I ever did was really pay attention in his class. And we were in all the different choirs together with him, the small ones and the larger ones. And he brought us to Scandinavia twice in high school. And he would orchestrate the whole thing. I mean, he would have these other choirs help and he would find places to put us up with people. And it was just incredible what he did. And he did this every year and he became kind of famous for it, that the Madrigal Choir would go over to Denmark and Sweden for, at the time, I think it was, it was over two weeks. So it was like over the winter break, like we would go, so... So you moved around a lot as a kid. Did you find music a great coping mechanism when you arrived in a new town and you had to start all over? In hindsight, I don't think I knew at the time, but I feel like it probably helped us make some friends. Even when we were younger, it was just, it's that kind of thing. You break out the guitar and start playing even a simple song. And some people get interested and they come over and see what's going on. And because David and I, my brother's name is David, because David and I would play together a lot and sing together. We loved the Beatles and we would sing harmonies and all that kind of stuff together. We would get people's attention pretty quickly because it was just a little bit odd to have those blood harmonies coming out of these little, little voices, little bodies and stuff at the time. Yeah. Tell me about your history with recording and how it led to becoming a, a professional in that regard. Well, as you know, I started in my basement doing our own recordings in our eighth grade band. And shortly after that, I got a four track machine and started getting better at putting things together and planning things out. In my high school band, when we were freshmen, we went to a recording studio near our town in Connecticut. And it was an unbelievable experience. I was terrified to talk to the engineers or even like be in the control room. Just it seemed intimidating, mm -hmm. but I loved the experience of playing and hearing everything in the headphones and then hearing everything played back. And I don't think the engineer actually wanted us in the control room. So he would play everything on the, on the live room studio speakers as he was working on stuff. And we would just be out there having the time of our lives, listening to him mix the stuff that we had recorded in that day. But I didn't feel like I could talk to the engineer and I really wanted to, I had like a million questions. Mm. The first one was like, how can I do this, get to work in a place like this? And so time kind of went by and everybody came up to Boston. We played in the band throughout, did a lot of our own recordings. And then 
once everybody came to Boston, we all lived in a house together in Austin, Massachusetts, Austin Rock City. And we went to a recording studio called Newberry Sound, which was across from the radio station WBCN, which was like the big rock and roll radio station at the time. And we worked with an engineer that was really talkative and like friendly. And I felt comfortable asking him questions. And he let me work the auto locator on the tape machine because <laughs> I knew the, I knew the structure of the songs. You know, after like the basic tracks went down, he would say, and my brother would be out doing a, a part or somebody would be out doing a guitar part. And he would say, take me to the second verse. And I'd punch in the number and hit locate and it would go to the second verse. And that's what I did. I just sat there and did that. And I asked him if I could come back and just do this for other projects that he was working on. And he was like, sure, as much as you want. So I basically showed up there as much as I could. And I realize now I was basically like a piece of gear. And it was pretty cool for him to just not have to worry about the auto locator and just say, take me to this place. Take me to the second verse. Take me to the outro. Take... And I would sit there and just chart the structure and put the numbers right next to it on a pad like he showed me. And I got really good at sort of tracking the structure of songs. I was already interested in that anyway, but that was my foray in. And then the, the owner of the studio asked the engineer, he said, this kid that's showing up, like, what's his deal? Are you paying him or, or what? He was kind of, how old is he? I was 18, by the way. And he asked about me and I got good reviews. And he said, well, why don't, why don't we officially bring him on, I like, guess, in an intern? So I, I had like a paid internship and it was probably like less than minimum wage or whatever at the time. But I was like completely enthralled. You were kind of like a, like an earlier version of Google or Alexa in tape op form. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey That's Alexa, take feel, me yeah. to the second verse. Yeah. But now that we've been doing this for a, like so long now, you know how like Anything that you can do to get you thinking more about the music and less about some distraction or technical thing is always great. So that was one of those things that just sort of worked out for both of us. And I'm eternally grateful that he was friendly and open and allowed me to ask my 18-year-old annoying questions and hang around afterwards, and show up before and all that kind of stuff. Did you ever get paid there? Yeah, I eventually got paid. When I really got paid was when the engineer was sick and there was a session coming in. And at that point, I had started like freelancing around and doing other things. I was kind of brave by then, but I still wasn't like a full-fledged engineer at this place or anything like that. I was young. And he said, can you handle this session? I, I think you can, you know, it's pretty basic. It's just drums and bass and a guitar and you've done this a lot. You know how to set it all up and you know how it all works. And, and I was like, yeah, I got this, no problem. And hung up the phone and was like freaking out. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. This is, I'm like, what did I just do? And um, I went and I did it. I struggled a little bit. I'm sure it took like way longer than it should have taken to get things done. But I think the band was so just happy to have the session and not have to move it. And it actually sounded okay and everything was fine. And so it, luckily worked out for me. And that's when I really became brave enough to do more of that, not just at that place, but at a whole bunch of other places. How many years did you spend prior to taking over Zippa? How many years in the trenches of being a freelancer and working at studios and 
I think it was probably about six or seven years at that point, if I do the math, seven years. Yeah. So I did like seven years of freelancing around. My brother and I were in a band at the time. We had a couple like brushes with big label deals that didn't really work out with two different labels, mm -hmm. which brought me out to A&M Studios at one point, which was where I met Michael James, a great producer who's really active right now. Oh, yeah. Great mixer. Do you know Michael? My, yeah, Michael lives up here. I met Michael in, in the early 90s, and we recorded together at A&M Studios back in the day. And then he got us another development deal with Interscope after that. And he's been a great champion of me and my songwriting and all of that kind of stuff throughout my 20s and in that time. So we've remained friends. And since then, because I was an engineer back then, and just I wanted to separate that a little bit at that point, I think, mm -hmm. and be more of like... I'm in a band right now. I'm not the engineer guy. So I kind of kept quiet about it a little bit. But Michael, I think, knew pretty quickly after that that we could probably work together. And then we ended up producing some bands together and doing some records together with other bands. And he would fly to Boston and do mm. some work with me at Zippa in the early 90s. And yeah, it's cool that you know Michael. And He's been on the show twice, actually. Yeah. So audience, I'll include a link in the show notes to both the episodes that Michael James has been on. So, well, then, as you know, he's a really positive person and he was a great influence on me as well, being really steeped into working with a song and he was very song oriented and I learned a lot of things from him early on, you mm. know, just about things I could do to the structure of a song to keep the interest, things like that. And I like to think I showed him a couple things too. And, and I think we just really enjoyed working together in those years. In the years leading up to Zippa, all the experiences that you had behind the glass, on the other side of the glass as well, what are your takeaways? What kind of information and experience did you bring to the table when you eventually took over Zippa? Just any situation that I was in. I mean, when I was recording on the engineering side of the glass or the production side of the glass, most of my studio experience up to that point really had been on the recording side as an artist. And so I think I developed empathy for the artist in the moment without even realizing it, especially tracking vocals. And that was something that I think a lot of the people around me didn't really enjoy doing. And for some reason, I really enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed chasing something very specific with an artist, taking notes on where they were vocally, you know, hey, maybe you need to cool down because your lower register is thinning out a little bit, things like that. And I should say, I took a lot of vocal coaching lessons myself because I never had confidence as a lead singer in the way that I think I probably needed to have. And so when we were first sent out on tour, it was a six-week tour and we were playing sometimes two shows a day. So we played something like 70, I think it was 72 shows in six weeks, which was like really tough on my voice. And so I knew it was going to be tough and I prepared with six months of vocal coaching leading up to it. And that has helped me so much in the studio working with singers, hmm. just gauging where they're at, what we need to do, some tools to reach the higher note, and also kind of realizing when they're tired or when their voice sounds better in a certain register. Hey, when we do morning sessions, we should save these two songs in the lower key for the morning sessions. And then we'll book later sessions for the other stuff for the higher sessions, just things like that, that you yeah. would know because you were, it's happened to me, you know, and I'm aware of it on my, my own mechanics as a singer. So 
Pete Weiss, who's also been on the show, and once again, audience, anybody I name here that's been on the show, the link will be in the show notes. Pete, of course, will be there. Pete Weiss originally had Zippa, and you took over. I guess there was a transition point there, right? So you two were partners for a bit, and then he kind of phased himself out. Is that accurate? Yeah. In 1989, he started Zippa, and we were friends back then, too. And I was freelancing all over the place in those years. And one day I went into Zippa to record one of my personal projects and engineer it. And I was just like, you know, we'll just go in there and make a demo of a couple of things. And I really enjoyed it. I really liked the vibe of the place. And it was really modest back then. It was a big open garage style space with high ceilings mm. and a tiny little control room that you would have to like cram into, but there were like Neve modules and some cool gear and some things that we could use to get really good results in this unassuming facil looking facility. And I just told Pete, I love this, that you, you know, it's not this big fancy place and it doesn't provoke the nerves that some people have when they walk into a big glossy studio. And I felt like we could really be creative ourselves in here and I could see bringing other people in. And so he said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll give you a really good friends and family engineers rate, and you can try it on for size. Well, I started bringing everything that I was working on in there. I mean, to the point where he and his partner at the time, Ken Thomas, came to me, and Ken was kind of the business guy out of everybody that we knew. Ken came to me and said, why don't you just become a partner here with me and Pete? Mm. And I didn't even know what that meant, but to me, it was like joining the band, and I'm like, you got it. Like, that's all it was, you know? <laughs> you bet. It's done, you know? And then we thought about it a little bit and I said, you know, if there's three of us, we have a little bit more power, you know, financial power. If we want to like take a little bit of money and maybe put up a wall and make a larger control room, get a better console. And we were just kind of brainstorming. And the three of us, all of us were psyched. We were just like, we could do this. I think we could do this. So we all did whatever we had to do to cobble the money together to put it into the studio. And I think we each put in $10,000 and did a build out. And I bought a U47, which you could do back then. Yeah. And everybody just contributed what they could. We swapped out some gear and refreshed some other stuff. And by 94, that was all done. And it was kind of the way that the studio had sort of remained for most of the time afterwards. And then around 2003, I think, Pete moved. I mean, he got the itch to move to Vermont. He found this amazing property. As you know, he built this incredible studio. It basically, he built his dream. And it was destination-style recording. Just beautiful. Acres upon acres, frog pond, Garden of Eden stuff, you know, in this right. place. And at that point, there was really no choice. Ken had gotten out a long time ago. I think it was more fun for him than anything else. So throughout the 90s, Pete and I did a lot of records together. And by 2003, Pete stepped away. And just we pretty much just horse traded out the gear we needed to do this and that. You take the console, take the tape machine, you do this. Uh, how about this mic? I always like that mic. You know, it was kind of like one of those things, no big deal. And then it was just me at the studio. But it was busy. It was my turn to kind of figure out how to keep it booked with just one person there. So I started a better internship program and I brought in some younger engineers, almost all of them that came through. I don't know how I was so lucky, ended up being actual engineers that worked at the studio. Mm. Four of them that came up through the, the internship program became like very important people at the studio during that time. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Did you feel capable to take over the business side and the management side of, of things? I did because, well, between the three of us, as I said, like when there was three of us involved, Ken was the business person. And so he would school us. He would say, I need all the receipts from your sessions. You know, every month we do this. And then he put them into a spreadsheet for us. And then we had these elaborate splits of how you pay everybody out based on your sessions and things like that. It was way more complicated than it needed to be. But at the time, it just seemed like the keys to the kingdom that we figured out how to make this work between the three of us. Luckily, we were and are great friends that nobody had any kind of ego or designs about paying somebody else out or if somebody had a slow period and the other person it just we all thought it would just come out in the wash Mm -hmm. and it sort of did good clubhouse mentality yeah and so we kept it simple like that you know like that and then when it was just me i sort of just kept doing the same thing i was basically doing paper receipts and then putting them into excel at the end of every month and then that's what i gave to my accountant it's way more sophisticated now with the internet obviously there are so many things that are automatic Pete left in 2003? I think so, yeah. Wow, that's almost 20 years you've been running it on your own. Is that accurate? Yeah, yep. And you had done a big rehab. We turned the control room around. We opened things up. We had fantastic acoustical treatment. We made a little kitchenette. We made things more comfortable. The things that were kind of nagging me about the studio, Mm -hmm. even though no one ever complained, people went in there and just like, we were high-fiving at the end of every day in that place, which is what I loved about it so much. But for me, I kind of had a dream. I wanted to have it realized. There were certain people that I wanted to work with that maybe, and my friends tell me, you shouldn't have felt self-conscious about having that person over to the studio or, or whatever. But a lot of the guys that I hire to play on records play in Amy Mann's band, and they play with Laurie McKenna. 
And they're always talking to me. They're like, Lori would love this place. And I'm like, I would love to have a place where I felt comfortable to ask Lori to come over here because I would love to work with Lori. And that was part of my inspiration for doing what I did to the control room, Hmm. you know, at the end of last year was just to have a place where I, because I knew that I have the skills and I can get the sounds and all that's nothing like that. I wanted a place that was more service oriented for the client where they could go to the kitchen and there was tea and there was coffee and there was a dishwasher. So at the end of the night, we could throw stuff in the dishwasher and just leave and just, just it civilized and a nice, comfortable <laughs> couch with nice space. And everybody would just feel great in this room. And I, you know, I wanted nice, cozy wood walls and I wanted it to sound good. So I just really worked on that. We hung about 24 clouds in the control room and the ISO and we put in a real floor, like a nice looking floor instead of like a parquet. That was probably the biggest expense was doing the floor. But that made a huge difference. You know, it made the spaces, which were kind of cut up, feel more continuous. It's a shame. I had two weeks in that place before the fire happened. And Mm. my clients were so loving it. And they were loving it for me, but I think they were loving it for them too. Before we talk about the fire, in let's just say the time since Pete left, in in the 18, 19 years leading up to the fire, was the studio profitable? Were there were there ups and downs or was it generally a smooth ride? It was generally, it was cranking along really great until about 2008. Mm, and everything went weird in 2008 around here and a lot of places. That coupled with the fact that there were a lot of my existing clients that had started to record in their rehearsal spaces with laptops and things like that. And it seemed like everybody wanted to try their hand at making their own record. It just became the thing to, to try to do. A couple of years after that, because it was probably a year and a half of sort of a weird period like that. After that, so many of those clients, I just came back around and were like, oh, I don't want to do that again. Right. And then some of them actually ended up being more enamored by engineering and kind of didn't want to do it on the smaller level of in their place. And they ended up coming in and working at Zippa as well, which I thought was a great thing. I was very threatened though by the technology at the time. And I do remember that and just the fear that was associated with that. Am I going to lose this place kind of a thing? It's like having a bunch of uh, homeowners say, well, I'll just build my own house. And then realizing this is harder than I thought it was. Can you do this? That's what happened. Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk about the fire. What was the ultimate cause of the fire? Is that something we could talk about? We can talk about it. It's that's still under investigation right now. The accelerant was a car in the garage on the another part of the building that's outside of the studio. So, I mean, luckily we didn't have heat or flame inside the studio. Unluckily, the fire went up and across and over. And so the top floors and all the water, it was an eight alarm fire. There was so much going on. The vents had filled with water, the plaster got wet, the upstairs became feeble. So much of that fell into the studio space. So a lot of the ceiling caved in in different ends of the control room and live room. And everything was probably, I couldn't go in there at the time, but it was probably waist high with water. And so, because we watched it burn from five, well, I got to call it 5.30 in the morning. And it was one of the other tenants in the building. It was actually his wife because they were in the car. And she just said to me, the building's on fire. And I mean, I was, I was half asleep. I said, what? And she said, the building's on fire. And I guess my wife could hear it through the phone. And my wife just popped up 
out of bed. And we just, I said, I'll be right there. And we literally threw on shoes and I put on a jean jacket. I wasn't even thinking. I didn't even think my wife had a jacket on. We just like got in the car and went. And we couldn't get anywhere near the building. There were like lights and sirens and barricades. And hmm. I eventually went up to one barricade and I said to this guy, I, I have a business right up there. I, I need to get over there. And he let me through. It was, you, the smoke was thick, black, even there, you know, even I'm talking like a half a mile down the road, it was black, thick, and it was dark, it was 5.30, and you could just smell it everywhere. As we got closer, we just pulled the car over and just started running up the hill. You couldn't see six inches in front of your face. It was so, it was so thick, and the water was way up over our ankles as we're, it's just gushing everywhere, like you're walking through a river. And lights and chaos, and it was just unbelievable, a nightmare. The landlord lived in the building, and there were two other tenants as well, and I was trying to call his phone the whole ride over, and it was just going to voicemail, so I was freaking out. We'd become quite close. Every morning, you know, I park in front of the garage, and he pulls his car out of the garage, so I move my car, and then, and then at night, he pulls back in. But every morning, I got to see him for that little exchange, all through COVID, all through, you know, when nobody else was in the building and I was busy mixing or whatever, it was like me and the landlord, you know, like every morning, how you doing? And he's an 83-year-old man. So I was very kind of worried about him. Luckily, I spotted him outside with the other two people that were living in the building. And that was a huge, huge relief. But this guy, mm -hmm. tough as nails, He's like one of the largest vintage Cadillac parts dealers in the country. And so this building just had so much character. I mean, people would walk in, there's all these crazy, cool old vehicles and car parts and old radios. Mm. and. But he was okay. He was okay. And that was great. But then it just settled in. I mean, we're freezing. We're soaking wet. There's like mist in the air and smoke. And, and we're watching this thing burn. And we watched it burn until the... The sun came up and then the sun went back down and it was still being doused with water. And so water was gushing out of every doorway, every, every space it could get out, it was gushing out. And so I just knew like, mm. you know, that this was not gonna be, this was not gonna be good. Now I should say during the day, Annie who works at the studio, she does more than work at the studio. She is part of the studio. She's been such a great contributor for 12 years. She's been working there and treating it like it's her own, really just unbelievable in how she cares about the place and the work that she does as an engineer and a producer. And she, um, she showed up with a couple other friends of ours, you know, dear friends. And as it was burning, just for support, she kept saying, I think, I think there's going to be some stuff in there that's going to be okay. Why won't they let us in? Can we get a firefighter to go in? Can we? She was really like pushing for this. And we kind of moved over to where the firefighters were and tried to get friendly with some of them because things had sort of gotten to the point where trucks, ladders, everything's in the air and it's just water like crazy. And there's a bunch of firefighters standing around because there's nothing else they can do at this point. They had all gone in, they break holes in the ceiling and they try to like make it so that the fire can come out the top of the structure somehow. Mm -hmm. So there were some that were running in and out and maintaining, and, and we were able to talk to them. And this one guy in particular, 
Annie and I got his attention and I showed him a picture of the control room and I said, hey, look, I, I see that you're going in and out of there. If you do go in and you can get to this area, there's two silver boxes down below to the right of, the, of this big mixing console. And if you could bring those out, I would be so grateful. And he went in and he brought them out. And he said he had to reach into the water and bring them out, but they were our raid drives. So, oh, jeez. We had those, and that was the thing that kept plaguing me all day. I'm like, I know, I'm going to lose. I'm probably going to lose everything. But I know how much lightning in a bottle was captured, how much work went into all of these projects. I was in the middle of eight full-length records and about a half a dozen other smaller like projects at the time. And so I was just thinking, how am I going to, recreate this for one how am i going to face these people <laughs> two is the other thing and everyone i spoke to was, was like that would never even be an issue with you know but i just know that i would probably be thinking damn it you know that record was great how am i going to do this again but i was grateful to get the data i brought it to um, a data recovery service it's very expensive to do and we recovered our drives, uh, all of our current things that were that were in in progress, which was huge. About a week later, the landlord calls me and says, "Ryan, we got some guitars of yours out of the building." And I was like, "Oh my god!" And so I called him back, and he had sent some of the guys that work for him into the building, and they basically grabbed whatever was out, like what was on a hanger anything that they could find that looked like a valuable thing or a guitar, which is what they knew, guitars. And they pulled 14 guitars out of the studio. Now, they're all black. They're all covered in soot. They were doused with sooty water. They had frozen and thawed many times over in that time. The weather was just so cold at that time. I drove to his other building in another part of town, and they were stacked up in the back of a suburban on top of each other with blankets and then stacked up. And my twin brother, David, met me there and, and we unloaded them. And it was so hard to look at them. I, you know, I could tell that some of them, the bodies had just cracked from the, oh yeah, from freezing. And um, it was, I, but I was grateful to have the sentimental aspect of what was there, whatever it was. And if I can make anything playable, I wasn't even thinking about that at that point. It just didn't seem possible to me. Uh-huh. But we took them, I put them in my basement of my small apartment because I couldn't look at them. And about two weeks in, my wife was like, you got to get those things out of the basement. It's not any good to have those things down there. And they smell like a campfire, Matt. <laughs> like they, everything in my apartment smelled like a campfire, like just anyway from being there, you know, right. that these things were just awful. And I brought them upstairs with my, my son helped me bring them upstairs and... I didn't do anything to them. I just, I stacked them up around the room, 14 guitars all over the place. And it was two days of that. I was so depressed <laughs> that I grabbed one of them, a really sentimental one that my father bought me when I was 13, a Telecaster. And I got some denatured alcohol and I started rubbing away everything that I could on the guitar to expose the guitar. And it looked okay. Hmm. And so I was like, this is a win. This is like probably the biggest win. And I should say, if I could back up, because just to give you the play-by-play -play on the day of the fire, which I really never really completed, but one of the other firefighters ran in and grabbed two guitar cases, and one of those was my 59 Gretsch Duo Jet. Oh, my gosh. 
And so it was filled with water and it's, it, it's uglier than it was, but it's dried out by now and it actually plays. And my Guild acoustic guitar that I had from when I was a teenager, I dumped it over like two liters of water came out of it. It was almost like a comedy. People laughed. I actually laughed because it was like you expected <laughs> to see like a fish flopping around, you know, like <laughs> on the ground. But I was walking away from the fire that day with those two things going, this is basically what I had when I started. I can, I can do this. You again. can rebuild. Sure. Yeah. I have to ask you just like, did any of the audio gear survive? Tape machine, console, microphones, anything? No tape machine, no consoles. It's just those things are, they're frozen, covered in rubble. The ceiling had fallen in over both of those things. There's just no way to get to them. But it's not all bad because one of my U47s, I have three, were up, was up high on a stand. And I, I was able to go into the building eventually. And it was like walking into a prehistoric cave. There's icicles hanging from everything, monitors, the ceiling, <laughs> everything. And it was just, everything was frozen, like in a deep freeze. Yeah. I managed to, I went in with somebody that's very handy and I managed to like unlodge the connector and get the 47 out and. But not the power supply? I got the power supply out. I had to dig it out of the a frozen water. That's what I thought. Situation. It would be covered in water. So it's tra it's trashed right now. Burt Price has it, who's an amazing tech. And he's gonna just like keep the shell and rebuild something on the inside of it for me. And um I removed the capsule. I'm pretty good at working on those microphones and I put a Tiersch capsule in it. I replaced it all the resistors and a couple of the key capacitors and got an aftermarket supply from the guys at Telefunken. They were they don't sell them separately and but their heart went out to me and I'm so grateful that they were, you know, were willing to sell me a supply that didn't go with a mic because I know those things are built to order with the mic. I want to talk about that. Talking about people's hearts going out to you. A GoFundMe campaign raised nearly $200,000 in a very short amount of time. Talk to me about the emotional aspects of this and the support you received. And then I would like to talk about what's the future plan. But let's let's talk about the emotional impact. That's a hard thing to go through. How are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm feeling okay right now. And it's because of that, of that support. On the day of the fire, my sister-in-law had been hanging around there with us. And she just had to do something. And she said, the best thing I can do right now to help you is to go and do a GoFundMe to find a way to give you some sort of hope and some support. Yeah. And I couldn't even like really process that, but she was thinking that way and I'm grateful. I was like completely floored by the support and how quickly people came to my rescue. And most of these people are people that I know at first, but what really, what really, resonated beyond that was how many people I didn't know were yeah. just like, I feel for this guy. I feel for everybody that lost this place because people were posting things online and they were posting things like on Facebook and Instagram, just talking about how tragic it was for them to lose this place. And I think that's what really hit me. And I started to feel because I'm in shock and I really start to feel emotional yeah. on the day of what's 
going on where I can't, someone would say to me, you're not going to believe this. The, the GoFundMe just jumped up to this thing. And this is, um, the, the building's burning right in front of me. And this is happening. And all I felt was like amazing gratitude. And it gave me strength. I mean, even on that day, I remember turning to Annie and saying, this is good. We're going to be okay. This is going to work. People want this to work. They want us to do this. And I just, I said, I remember saying to her, I was put on this earth to make records and we're going to figure out a way to keep going. Mm -hmm. So what's the future hold then? Well, luckily I have the data that I was in the middle of all these records. So I've started bouncing around between two different studios in town here. And both of these studio owners, David Minahan at Woolly Mammoth and the guys over at Mad Oak, Benny Grotto and Craig Riggs and PK Pandy, they just opened their doors to me, both of those studios. And they just said, whatever open days we have right now on our calendar, you can just take them and we're not going to charge you. And you can come in and you can get the lay of the land and you can get your legs under you and you can start to get back to it. And we want to help you with that. And that was like so incredible, like just so moving and so important. Mm. They knew what was important to me because I think they empathize. They just, they know, they know what it must be like. And so- I've been working, I've been starting to get back to these projects just in the past week, actually, over at these two fantastic places that I'm so lucky to have at my disposal. And both business owners gave me keys. I have keys and alarm codes, and they treat me like family. That's, and, uh, yeah. that's amazing. That sense of community is, I mean, it's, it's, it's irreplaceable. It's amazing that, that you have that. And you'll have to excuse me. There's some practical things in my head like, well, how, how is he going to do this? And how is this going to work? First of all, I want to say this because I just watched this guy, I, and I apologize. I can't remember his name. And he's got like, I don't know, 50,000 followers on YouTube. Watched him talk about data loss on solid state drives and the difference between that and hard, hard disk drives. Your raids were made with hard disk drives. So it's easy to take those platters move them over to a temporary housing and reclaim what's on there. Most RAID drives for cost reasons are made up of hard disk drives and not solid state drives. Simple question, what RAID drives did you have? And when you said silver boxes, were you referring to the color of the boxes themselves or were they in some kind of packaging? Yeah, they were in this, it's a Dicon, D-Y-C-O-N, I think is how you spell it. We had two of these boxes that said daikon on the side of them and they each house two you could take two raw drives and you put them in a carriage and you pop the carriage into each one and then you flip a switch on the back to make it stripe arrayed and so we had two of those and so the silver boxes were the housings that okay that we okay used. i was imagining two suitcases with hard drives in them so that's that's just me yeah. imposing my thoughts okay then the next practical question is is the number one question I think some people are going to ask is, did you have insurance? Luckily, I did have insurance. The lesson I learned is, I mean, I've had this policy for a very, very long time. And every year when the insurance company sends you that email to DocuSign and click to reinstate your policy, I would urge everybody to reassess your coverage for the contents that you own. Because... My cap was so far underneath what I had that without this GoFundMe, it would be impossible for me to think about the things I 
am lucky enough to be thinking about now, like, can I find a new space? Right. Can I get these necessary pieces of gear that I need to make the studio? Can I do a build out? And that is something that I wish I had done so badly because the insurance company, they come to you after something like this and they want to know what they can do to figure out what the contents were. And I, I was just like, well, why don't you just start on the gear page of the website? And I just wanted things moving, you know, and I'm like, start there. And that brought him up to something like astronomical. And I was, that's when it hit me that, oh, I'm not covered very much for what I need. Mm. I mean, it was about a half a million dollars, I think, is what they got just from the gear page, which doesn't include all the other stuff, headphone mixers, <laughs> cabling, chairs, anything. Yeah. Acoustical treatment, anything related to that build out. So your message to the audience would be really read the fine print on your insurance policy to know what you really are covered for and the events of that, whether it's fire, flood, et cetera. Yeah. And I would say adjust those values for contents, things that you own that are in the building every year. If you bought stuff that year, you should be adding that to your policy dollar amount. You don't have to get into the minutia of it. You just have to go, hey, I spent $30,000 on gear this year. It was a big year. We upgraded to a Mac and we got different Pro Tools and we did all this other stuff. But if you don't change your policy, then nothing ever happens. You're stuck with whatever you thought you had when you opened your policy. In our case, I'd had the policy for decades. And so it was just, just terribly outdated in that regard. Do you fully intend on finding a new space and doing a studio or have you had any reservations and thinking maybe it's time to not do another studio and maybe I should try a different way to do this without actually renting a building or what's crossed your mind? I've really been looking for a building and I have my heart set on having another studio and I learned a long time ago how much better my work got when I was able to be consistent about it. And when I had a consistent listening environment and when mm. I had just things that were consistent to the way that I like to work and tools that were always there and all those things that you rely on when you have your own space and the things that aren't tangible, some of those are the most important. Like most people do whatever, their car test or whatever makes sense to them, how they listen. The control room at Zippa was always the place where I knew best. Yeah. And so if someone sent me a mix, you know, my brother sent me something he was working on or a friend, and I was at home, I would just say, I'll check it out first thing tomorrow when I'm at the studio again. Right. <laughs> because that's where I knew how to give them really good feedback. So I really, I put a lot of value in having a consistent space. And there are a lot of singer-songwriters I work with. There's a lot of songwriting that happens. There's a lot of co-writes and things. And I like to get into an environment that I know is comfortable, repeatable, and hopefully becomes a touchstone for the creative people that are coming in. Yeah. You know, some people may look at that GoFundMe and say, oh my gosh, it's a huge amount of money, a couple hundred thousand dollars. It's really not. I mean, the capital investment you are going to need to get to the next studio situation is going to be immense. And obviously you've learned some lessons along the way and you, you'll know what you can do without, but it's going to be a challenging road ahead for you. I, I, you know that, and, and I know that. Yeah. But I want the audience to realize, you know, there's no candy coating here. It's going to be hard. Yeah, and that's a good point. And it is a lot of money. And, you know, I've had 30 years to spend that money to make Zippa what it was. And that's kind of the only way I would have ever been able to do that. But it does accrue. 
my goal is to have a studio by the end of the year, you know, and that's a pretty lofty goal. That's a tall order. Yeah. And so I'm actively looking at spaces. I'm talking to other studio owners to see if there's some kind of partnership, expansion, build out kind of situation that could happen. I mean, I think I owe it to the other engineers that worked at the studio regularly too. It was their place too. Annie and Miranda and James and the other freelancers that were around as well. I mean, I just think them and the musicians that are calling me going, hey, when can we get, like I ran that business very strangely in the way that I realize that people make records around their life schedules now. Mm -hmm. In the older days, we dealt with indie labels mostly. And so a band would come in and you'd spend two weeks with that band and then they would go and then you'd do two weeks with another band, right? You remember that era? <laughs> and it changed. It's now the clients that we're dealing with are the artists themselves. We're not dealing with some label person. So instead of having a relationship with five or six labels that keeps your studio busy all year, you're managing every single client that comes in there, every artist. So I started to schedule things in a way that made sense for people where I had regular days for a lot of people. So I had like, I would have a writing session with this person every week and they would pay to come into the studio and we would write together and we would record a demo. And we just had something that I had another project that every single week we would meet and we would do that, his project. And I had lots of things like that. And it's how I kept things moving and it's how I stayed busy. It's why I was in the middle of eight records when this happened. And I have people calling me saying, I'm jonesing. <laughs> I got to, their, their creative itch is not being scratched right now. And right. no one's being like, you know, hey, come on, what are you going to, you know, angry about it? But they're like, hey, if there's any way I need an outlet, I could really use, they tell me it's their therapy in a lot of cases. That gives me a lot of motivation to recreate a space. It would yeah. be easy for me to just go, you know, I'm going to freelance around. It's a little bit more driving, but I know I can be busy doing that. It's just, I want to recreate that magic place and that consistent touchstone, not just for me, but for other people. You know, I'm going to throw a suggestion out because I, like many people, saw what was happening and it was just like, I didn't know you. And, and I thought, what the hell would I do in that situation? And I really felt for you. If I may make a suggestion, if I were in the same position, it's not an enviable position to say the least, but if I needed to build up a studio really quick, I would be fearless in reaching out to gear manufacturers and saying, you know, I'm not expecting anything for free here, but I could really use a hand and a partnership of some sorts, uh, forming a relationship, do whatever promo you need to do, but have them come to the table with you and, and see if they can, like if there's certain pieces of gear you need, I would go straight to the manufacturers and say, this is what I need. Can you cut me a deal? Can we do some kind of trade, whatever, so I can get this whole operation up and running? Because you don't have 30 years to do this all over again. Right. You got to do this now. So that's great advice. And, you know, I'm amazed by the manufacturers that actually reached out to me on their own accord. Gibson sent me two guitars. I didn't ask Gibson to send me guitars. I mean, I was like, wow, Gibson, what a cool thing. And yeah. it's Gibson. <laughs> and I thought, all right, they'll probably send me whatever the blue guitar no one wanted in the other. They sent me a custom shop, Les Paul, black, and a J45 acoustic in Tobacco Sunburst. And they're gorgeous, amazing examples of these things. They sent me the best of the best. As in tears when they showed up, these guitars showed up. John Whitcore over at Avid 
who's a friend of mine, I called him because I, I wanted a remote rig, something that I could just move around with if I need to. And I bought a carbon unit. He gave me a really fantastic off sheet deal to help me get back up on my feet. And I put a rig together with based around the Pro Tools Carbon. Which is a great box, by the way. It is great. Link Studio Technology. Like I told you, I, when I was able to get back in with some people to help, we grabbed whatever we could out of there. We pulled things out of there. Any rack gear we could get to, we we pulled out. We even wheeled the Mellotron out. It looks it's awful, but I managed to get my converters out and my two links auroras and they were obviously just really trashed links reached out to me albert reached out and said let me give you an ra i want you to send those if we can help you with those we want to help you with them and for 250 dollars per unit i just got them back yesterday and they basically reconditioned them they're like all in like new packaging and everything they look like new links boxes to me i just want to say something here and that is is that the sense of community is not just the recording studios and the engineers. We have to recognize that some people go, oh, big, bad companies, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of great people at those companies who have a heart, who have been in the business. They've been in and out of studios. They know what we go through. They know what we do. And they have a heart. So I just want to say kudos to those that, that reached out, Avid, Gibson, Lynx. I mean, come on. That's fantastic. I should also say that, and I completely agree, <laughs> but I should also say that David Lyons from Sonic Circus, who's relatively local, has helped me out quite a bit too. He sent me this mic that I'm talking into. He was just like, I went up there and he just sent, he just sent me back with stuff. He sent me back with an Upton C12 and an AKG C28 and like this like crazy gear. And he was just like, if you need anything, he's like, you can just take it. You can just take it and you can borrow it and you can use it. And if you want to buy it, you, I'll give you a great deal on it. But don't even worry about that. It's not about that. I used to work there part-time and more than part-time at one around 2008. He and I became close. He's a dear friend of mine. And when I needed help, he helped me out. And when all that stuff got pulled out of the studio and I don't have a place to put it, he drove down with a trailer and then filled it up with his son with whatever I could get out of there. Awful smelling toxic stuff and took it back up to his place and stored it in his place. Yeah. And I've since gone up there. I should tell you, I've since gone up there with a couple of my tech friends here because they have an amazing tech shop up there with an ultrasonic bath, a cleaner for electronics oh, yeah. that is gigantic. And so we were able to dismantle a lot of things and put them into the tank and then put them in a drying rack in a dehumidifying tent and reassemble some of those things. And I do have a couple things that are actually showing signs that they're gonna work. I haven't been able to really go through everything yet. Mm -hmm. I don't have, a, have the means or place to do that kind of thing yet, but I'm hopeful because of the help and the resources that I have that I'll be able to save a couple of key things. Well, we are about out of time, but I wanna say this. Well, first of all, I have to ask, the GoFundMe campaign continues on, does it not? Yeah, it is continuing. Okay, I'm going to include a link in the show notes. And audience, if you've got some spare dough, honestly, I'll just say it straight. If you've got some spare dough, consider donating here to this fund because here's the thing. Guys like Brian have worked tirelessly for many years to do something that really brings value to a lot of different people and affects people in profound ways. I don't want to get hippy-dippy on you, but I, I think you understand that 
what is lost here is not just to Brian. It's a loss to a community. It's a, it's a major focal point for a community. So the sooner Brian gets back up and running, the better off that community will be. So if you have some extra dough, please, I encourage you to donate what you can't, what you can afford. And I know Brian and, and all the people around Brian will be appreciative of it. I, I know that for a fact. So I will include the link in the show notes. So please consider that. Thank Brian, you very I, much. I'm really glad we got to meet, and I'm so sorry that it's under these circumstances. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, and I and I really hope to meet you in person, of course. I know we have a, several mutual friends. It's starting to appear, which is no surprise to me. It's a small world. It's a small community in, in audio and music. So I just want to thank you for taking the time. I'm sure a lot of people wanted to talk to you. I saw that. I think it was like a maybe it was an NPR story, or there was some story you were on, and I was like, mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, she's probably getting inundated. So... Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your time. Thank you for helping me get the word out. And I got to say, it's easier talking to peers about this stuff, like yourself, you know, that really, I feel like you understand it in a way that, that actually gives me comfort for some reason. And I feel like there's a, a mutual kind of understanding on a whole nother level. And so I do appreciate that very much. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, when I saw the news, I was just like, devastated. And of course, you know, our mutual friend, Derek over at Pace, Derek reached out to me and said, we got to get on, on a call together. I want to talk about this fire and how we can help Brian. And I was like, absolutely. Let's do it. They've been great by the way, too. I should say, I should give them a shout out because I have a plugin that I developed called the transatlantic plate reverb, which we didn't um, even talk about. Oh my God. No, that's okay. That, we'll do something another time. That's more <laughs> about that kind of stuff if you want. But the, you know, the company is called Rare Signals, if anybody wants to go look at it. But the people over at Pace, and Derek was instrumental in this, I'm sure, gave me a gigantic break on the fees associated with having the iLock license, which for me, being like a very small company, it's me and one other person. It's a lot. It's a lot for me to take on. And they reached out graciously and basically just gave me a pass on my licensing for a year, which was unbelievable. That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. He called me, I was in Michigan at my, uh, in-laws and he reached out and we had a, he and I had a one-on-one -on -one chat about your situation and brainstormed a little bit, but I'm really glad to hear that they helped you out. I will put a link in the show notes, of course, to your plugin company, the transatlantic reverb. Is that the only plugin in the, in the bunch? It is right now. I had something else in development that got a little bit derailed, but we'll see. Maybe I'll Maybe I'll be able to pick back up on it. It's definitely something I'm super passionate about. And I started doing for myself. I definitely got the bug. So I'm <laughs> sure that there'll be something else. Yeah. Well, that'll be in the show notes audience. Lots, lots of things in the show notes today, I have to say. So, <laughs> well, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much, Brian. I appreciate your time. Anything you need, please call me. Keep me in the loop of what's going on. I, I, I really, my fingers are crossed for, for your success and recovery in this. Thank you very much. I appreciate it so much. And I will keep in touch. I listen to the podcast a lot and you've, you've been great, just inspirational. You always give great advice. And I hope that I can call you out for some of that advice. If that would be okay, I would appreciate it because I, I consider you a very smart person and the voice of reason in many cases. And um, I could certainly benefit from that. I'm at your disposal, whatever you need. Fantastic. All right. Will you take care? All right. You too. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Brian Charles here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, I am going to have a link in the show notes for the GoFundMe campaign for Zipper Recording. Please contribute if you have the means to do so. Uh, That would be greatly appreciated. And also, remember, if you have a guest suggestion, head on over to workingclassaudio.com for the guest suggestion form. And that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew, including Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show with that lovely voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com. Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.